right, everyone. Welcome to Trail Angels, powered by Karen Delode. And today, hey, I'll tell you, I, I'm excited. I've been I've been uh, researching Dr. Joe Martin this afternoon as we uh, have uh, Dr. Joe on the line with us today, and uh, we're we're really excited to have you. We're going to be talking about something a little bit different than what we typically talk about, but something that is needed. And we just want you to sit back and. Be vulnerable with us, Dr. Joe, and and our listeners to just think, because there are so many that our our listeners know, but maybe don't know their story exactly, that have had experiences just like yours. So so let me get into into the bio of Dr. Joe here. He's an an award-winning internationally known speaker, author, professor, and certified man builder. And and we're going to get into that concept of man builder in a few minutes, who helps men win at what matters and frustrates them most as husbands, fathers, and spiritual leaders. He's authored or co-authored more than nine books, including Man Accomplished, Are You the Man? The Real Man Spiritual Leader Blue Book, He's also the host of a number one rated podcast for Christian men on Apple Podcast, which is more than, has one, more than 1.7 million downloads. And he's interviewed more than 475 men from all around the world, from company presidents to prison inmates. And your story, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing what uh, you've put on your bio here, you said, my life story can be summarized in one simple sentence, rags to riches, to ruin, to redemption, having it all by the age of 30, losing it all by the age of 40, and gaining it back by the age of 50. Now he's hosting a number one rated podcast for Christian men on on Apple. So welcome, Dr. Joe Martin. We're grateful to have you here with us today. Thank you guys for having me. It's my pleasure. You know, as, as I read your bio... I, you know, the, the immediate thought when I was reading this <clears throat> earlier today was the role of uh, of men in today's world, especially the role of fathers. And here we are coming up in a few weeks to Father's Day. And so if we talk about fathers, maybe a little bit more than just men in general today, uh, excuse me for doing that. But I, I just think that uh, the important role of fathers sometimes is marginalized a little bit. I think that, you know, it's interesting I grew up in the 60s, and uh, I grew up watching television programs like uh, Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, or the Andy Griffith Show. Those fathers were known as the smart guys. Then you go into the 70s and 80s, and and you have the sensible but tough man. You had the Cliff Cliff Huxtables, the uh, Fred Sanfords, the Ben Cartwright, and uh, Carl Winslow from Family Matters. And then you go into the 90s. And the fathers that uh, are represented in the 90s are people like uh, the father with married with children who looked like a total buffoon. Yeah, Homer Simpson, those that would have never even been considered, talked about uh, a decade earlier than that. And I guess my question for you is the stereotype of fathers changed over the years? Well, based on what you just outlined, it, it has based on the culture um, from, you know, a, our ministry, Real Men Connect, our organization, we're faith-based, and we know not everybody believes in the same God that we believe in. But from God's perspective, it hasn't changed. But we as believers who are Christians, um, we are to follow Christ, not culture. And what you just described, Mark, is culture changing over those decades. 
Um, so, yes, if you're asking from an entertainment standpoint, from a culture standpoint, yes, it has. But from a biblical spiritual standpoint, no, it has not changed. It's still supposed to be the same, even if it's not following the culture. What, why do you think that that is? You know, I obviously uh, men have been marginalized to a great degree. Why, why do you think that uh, entertainment has done that? Well, you know, there's, there could be a lot of reasons and explanations for that, but it could be um, the rise in feminism. Um, and as far as the role that the woman plays um, in the home now, also the increase in the divorce rates um, with people being more, I guess, open to express themselves sexually. Um, as the culture changes, they're just trying to adjust, adjust and um, go with the culture. And so they're appealing to what their audience will listen to. It's no different than us running a podcast. We have our, quote, niche audience and who we cater to. And so you're thinking about when it comes to entertainment, it's all about advertising. And so they're appealing to the market that they want to appeal to. I give a, a prime example. And if you've noticed this, there's two things that I've noticed. Well, it's probably more than two, but the ones that stand up, st- stands out to me as um, a person who's working with men, I noticed that there are now um, more where they're showing more commercials where there's interracial um, mm-hmm. relationships, if you haven't noticed that. And also they're, quote, normalizing same-sex relationships. And again, it's just going with the culture and they're appealing to their fan base or the people who they know um, they're going to track and watch. And so it's the culture. Everything is about the culture. That's really interesting um, that you point that out because it is all about the culture. And that's not how it should be. No. And um, I'm grateful that you pointed that out. But I want to take a little step back so that our listeners can get to know you and your story and how you are where you're at and how you have this ministry and how you support men throughout the world. Can you just share with us your story? Well, I'll give you an at the, the ESPN version. And I think Mark alluded to it earlier. He says, my story can be summarized from rags to riches to ruin to redemption. And those four areas of my life kind of like a four major chapters or volumes if you were doing the Star Wars trilogy or something, (laughs) you know, but those four areas are totally different things that happened to me in my life. I started with the rags part growing up in one of the toughest um, inner city ghettos in Miami, Florida, a place called Liberty City. And most people are not familiar with Liberty City unless I make a reference. And if they're over the age of um, 40 years old and they've ever listened to rap music, there was a group called Two Live Crew that caused a lot of stir um, back day because the reason why there is explicit lyrics in music and there's warning labels is because they set a precedent for it because they were uh, thrown in jail because they were doing that and they won their case for freedom of speech. And now all you have to do is put a warning label on any music. That's why when you see when the little E you see on all those things, that was because of two live crew, they set the precedent for that. So they came from my neighborhood from Liberty city if they're under the age of 40 and they don't, they've never heard of Liberty City, if they ever heard of a game called a video game called Grand Theft Auto, yeah, then they've heard of Liberty City. Because okay. Mark, think about it. If they make a video game about your neighborhood, that's not a good thing. <laughs> and, when, and when most people think of Miami, they think South Beach, they think celebrities, they think entertainers, J-Lo, um, A-Rod, and all these other people, Sylvester Stallone, um, the Miami Heat, Dwayne Wade, but that wasn't a part of Miami that I saw growing up in the rags part of my story. Um, my mom was a teenage mother at the age of 16 and had my sister a, a year and 27 days after that. So mm-hmm. you're talking about two kids by the time she was 17 with no father in the home. So my dad left when I was two years old. 
And to kind of tell you how isolated I was, um, growing up in Miami, I never saw the beach. And we're on a Miami's on the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> and I never right. saw the beach. And I didn't meet a white child till I was 12. That's wow. how um our isolated our community was. And you can imagine being isolated in a community like that. What I was exposed to was some horrible stuff from um, drugs to um, other addictions, um, violence, a lot of different things. Um, by the time I reached the age of 16, um, six, I've watched six of my friends been murdered by the time I reached the age of 16. Um, we were so poor that my younger sister used to steal food from her fast food job just so we could eat. I had a dozen friends by the time I graduated from high school who had done time in prison. Two were family members, two had life sentences. And when my dad wasn't there, my mom, she struggled raising us because she battled with depression and alcoholism. And my mom had some great days and she had a lot of bad days. And when she was having her bad days, she would become very violent and angry. But when she had her good days, she was always looking out for her children, to do the best she could to protect us. But she uh, recruited a family member to help raise me, to be a mentor to me. And this man came into my life and he sexually abused me as a child for three years. And my mom knew it. And so I was suicidal from the um, age of 12 to 16 years old. Now, that's the rags part. And I can go even deeper into that. But I'm going to get out of the rags part because when people hear that, they get all depressed. Say, wow, what a shame. But what comes after the rags was the riches. Now, I never came famous and rich, but based on where I started and what ended up happening in the next few years changed everything. Um, I was the first person in my family to graduate from high school, the first to go to college. Um, I graduated early at the age of 20, bought my first house when I was a senior in college. Uh, a year after I graduated in college, I moved my mom out of the projects. I graduated the top of my class at the age of 20. I was voted student of the year out of 10,000 students on my campus. And I was the only student of color in all of my classes. Uh, I became the youngest professor ever hired to teach in the state of Florida at the age of 24. I worked for the Florida governor's office at the age of 26. Um, had my PhD before I was 28 years old. Had written my first book before I was 30. Um, so I had all these things. I started my first business at the age of 22, a clothing store. So I had done all these things by the time I reached the age of 30. So I had achieved the American dream. Now, I wasn't a millionaire, but I felt like one, especially if you can move your arm out of the project and buy your first home yeah. when you were a senior in college. So right. I was doing well. I was, quote, winning. So now we go from rags to riches to ruined. However, and I got married at the age of 22. So I got married really young, but I didn't deal with my past from the rags part. I didn't deal with that. I just tried to outrun it. And I tell men all the time that the worst thing you could do is try to bury something. If you're going to bury something, make sure it's dead first. <laughs> but the thing that I buried was still alive. It was like a zombie. It came after me. And it, it caught me by the time I got married because I'm thinking I'm winning. We have it all. But yet my wife wasn't happy. And I couldn't understand what was going on because Annette, you can um, relate to stuff. Like she says, I said, why aren't you happy? She says, well, we're not emotionally connecting. I don't really understand. I'm not really, you're not really listening to me. We, you know, you know, you're not affectionate and all this. Stuff. I'm like, what's he talking about? And what it was, I was distant, emotionally distant, even though I was physically present. And so here I'm thinking we're living great. Everything's fine. We have a kid now and everything, but yet I just could not seem to make her happy. And I'm thinking she's the problem when the real problem was me. Because I wasn't equipped to be a husband, a father. All I knew is what I didn't want to be leaving Miami. But I never saw a picture of what I wanted to be. To give you um, kind of frame of reference, by the time I graduated from high school, I only had one friend in my neighborhood who had a mom and a dad in the home. And their family was dysfunctional. 
So I didn't have a great picture of marriage. So in my frustration, what most men do when they get frustrated, they look, if they're triggered, they go for coping mechanisms. And with me, um, I didn't abuse alcohol because I saw what it did to my mom. I didn't do drugs because I saw what it did to my community. Um, if you can, they can't see me, but you guys see me. I'm, I'm not really a overweight person. So I didn't eat a lot. So the thing with me was women. And it started with a little porn. And I tell people a little porn is like a little crack. It is no such thing. And it got worse and worse. And the porn went to strip clubs to now women. And I became what I call a serial adulterer. And I say what I call because there's no such word as a serial adulterer. But the reason I came up with the phrase is because I equate it to being a serial killer. Serial killers can kill so many, have so many victims, they lose track of the bodies. That's how bad I broke my covenant with my wife. And as you can imagine, me meeting her when she was a teenager and I was a teenager when we got married, she had never been with any other man in her life. And then the man she gives her herself to ends up sleeping with hundreds of women breaking the covenant. When I say I was a serial adulterer, it was horrible because not only was I cheating on my wife, I had money and I had access to anything I wanted. I may not be able to um, meet J-Lo, but I could find a woman that looks just like her if I wanted to because I had enough money to do it. And so you can imagine that destroyed my life. I lost my 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 wealth. Uh, risk my health is by the grace of God. I didn't die when I was doing what I was doing physically from getting some type of disease or something. Um, I lost my integrity. I lost my reputation. And pretty much I thought I hit rock bottom, which I did. But I thought that was the end. That no way God would ever use me again because I blew it. I abused his grace. I abused my wife. I ruined my life. I, I ruined our family. I destroyed my reputation. And so now that's the ruined part. And now I'm like, whatever happens, God, I'm okay. You know, I'm done. I had my chance. Now I'm one of those, um, what do they call cautionary tales, person who had it all and lost it all. But God introduced me to a man who changed my life. And I'm sparing you the details because if you want to go into it, we can. That showed me another side that I never saw. He showed me what it was, what it looked like to be a husband and a father, even though I was single now, divorced. And I saw, wow, that's what I was missing. What I knew is how to become a successful male, making the money, getting the positions, the titles and all this other stuff. I knew how to become a successful male, but I didn't know how to become a successful man until I met a godly man. And when I met him, it changed everything. And so now the redemption part is now I'm going back to make disciples, helping other men who have similar stories like mine, because you'll be surprised. There's a lot of us out there. Mm-hmm. your comeback stories or at the minimum at least prevent them from ever having the right one and so now i do real men connect where you said it earlier when you guys were introducing me that we help christian men win at what matters and frustrates them the most because here's the truth of the matter we want to be better men we desire to be better husbands better fathers but most of us i would say 90 percent of the men you know were never taught by the father in their home how to do it they never saw a model of it and so I'm trying to bridge that gap for the men who what I call not ADD or ADHD, but ABT ain't been taught. We're trying to teach them now of how to be better husbands, how to be better fathers and spiritual leaders in their home. And we're doing it in community where they're not now. They don't need to find that one father. They can have a community of fathers, of brothers, of Timothy's. I call them Timothy people they can mentor. And so we do it all together. So in our, our motto is no man should ever have to do life alone. And so now that's the rags to the riches, to the ruin, to now I'm living in the redemption part of my life right now. That's beautiful. And so much of, you know, this man that you met, 
that came into your life, this godly man. He was a trail angel. Yes, he was. Changed everything for me. Changed everything. And I think that we forget that power that we have within to be that influence, that trail angel to countless others that we see or we don't see. I mean, you have created this community, but I can only imagine that there are many, many, many others as that ripple effect has gone out further and further and further that their lives and then their children's lives and their spouse's life, it's completely different because they're not alone. They have that community and that hope and that godly example. So thank you. It's, you know, not only is it what I do for a living now is a joy and I'm humbled by it because um, I didn't want to do what I'm doing right now. Um, I was just happy that I survived it and was able to at least start piece of my life back together. But to now make it public and to go out in the public and speak at men's conferences and churches all over the country and sharing um, a lot of my mistakes, a lot of my struggles, my secrets, my scars and get the stares from especially the women who say, wow, how could he? You should see when my wife was with me right now, because now I'm remarried. Um, I have a bonus child, which I call uh, she's not my biological child, but you can't convince her she's not my daughter um, <laughs> and my own son. And we have a blended family. And you should see when I tell my story, they all look at my wife. And they're like, wow, you married something like that? You marry him? <laughs> you know, after that. Has. <laughs> and she is um, a godsend to me um, because most women could not handle my past, but my wife, um, she's an, um, she's ex-law enforcement, ex-military, so she's tough as nails. All right, she was a sergeant in the police department here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. You got to watch yourself there, don't you? Oh yeah. So <laughs> it's not like I can get away with anything. So, but um, but so she has the she she has the DNA that can deal with this, and she ministers to women too. She runs um, fitness boot camps for women. So you ever seen those Spartan races and all that stuff you see on television? They're doing this crazy stuff. My right. wife does that. She's the black version of G.I. Jane. That's what she's doing. <laughs> <laughs> Just one thing, when, I, when your wife, I mean, I would love to talk to her and maybe we'll have to do another episode and have you and your wife with us. But she had to see you, mm-hmm. see you for who you really are deep down, not for what we did. Or, you know, but the potential of what we could become when we had that. There was another thing um, you mentioned. You had just buried these things from your past. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of men do. We, we do that, tend to do that. Well, I think so do the women. Mm-hmm. When we don't know, we don't understand really why we feel that way. And it's too painful to look at. So we just bury it. Or we may understand why. But we just bury it. We think mm-hmm. if we just bury it and we stay busy enough and we get involved in something else, then it'll go away. And hopefully that something else is a is something that's not going to be negative and detrimental. But we have to look at ourselves and go to the the healer. And, and that's kind of where I wanted to take this next there is, is that uh, as, as you talk about owning our story, why is it difficult men, for men to own their stories? Oh, one key word, and Mark, is shame. Shame. 
Um, it's not hard to own a story when you're the hero in the story and you're successful and people admire you and respect you for what you've done. But when it comes down to the, the, the dirty parts, the, the not so friendly parts, is to shame. And the enemy uses that to keep us from not sharing our story. Um, there's a scripture in Revelation that says that we overcome him, the enemy, by the power of the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And so what the enemy doesn't want us to do is to share our testimony, the good, the bad and the ugly, because once we do it, it gives healing. I, I, I equate it this way. The tears that you cry should be medicine to other people's soul. And a lot of times when we fight back the tears and we hold the tears, we're preventing them from getting the healing that they need. So shame is what keeps us stuck, because what we're thinking is that if I tell you the truth and you really see me and what I've done, you're going to look at me differently. You're going to judge me. You're not going to treat me the same. You may shun me. You may reject me. So think about this. Do you really think if they invite me to a women's group and they say, Joe, we want you to share your story. You think I'm excited about telling them that I was a serial adulterer? What are all those beautiful women going to think of me when I get up on that stage? But see, when you when you get true healing and you understand where the healing comes from, you realize your story is no longer about you anyway. Your story is about bringing him glory because you can see the wreck that I was, but God, but God, see that's, but God part is what I can't wait to get to. I'll yeah. deal with the shame and your judgment and all these looks and stares, but I'm not finished yet. Let me tell you, but God, if it wasn't for him, I couldn't stand here before you on this stage with a mic in my hand, taking the stares from you and the judgment and the opinions. I couldn't do it. So I will continue to tell my story as long as he gets the glory for it, but shame is what keeps us from doing it. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that is that is so true. And once we recognize that it's not about us, mm-hmm. then we begin to change. Right. And 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 you know, and so as you're talking about uh, shame, let, let's let's process that shame over to vulnerability because you're very vulnerable. Uh, something that you didn't see men experience much uh, with in 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 years past. You know, one of the reasons why we weren't able to heal, I think, is because we were not willing to become vulnerable. Right. We weren't willing to be able to put ourselves in a position where we would be even willing to talk about uh, our transgressions, the things that uh, we'd experienced in our life. And it's just not typical or comfortable for a man to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. How, you know, I, I don't know if it's a culture thing, but uh, men are becoming more vulnerable. It's, it's something that uh, we see more and more of. How, how were you able to become vulnerable after living the life that you shared with us? Um, it's an incremental process. Um, I tell a lot of times we struggle when we're trying to, quote, recover because we want the whole picture. We want to see what the end is going to look like when we get there. And God is not obligated to show us his plan. What he wants to do is see if we'll take little small steps of obedience. Because we want to know the whole thing. See, we we see to the corner, but God sees around the corner. We may see the mountain, but he sees over the mountain. We see what's in front of us today, but he already sees our tomorrow. But we're pressed to want to know all the answers, to get all the answers. So it's going to be hard to be vulnerable when you want to know the outcome already. And so how do you do it? And how did I do it? God, I'm scared to death. I don't know what to do. What do you want me to do? What's the next step of obedience you want me to take? He told me, tell tell my ex-wife, confess to her everything. Boy, that was hard. Wow. That was one of the most scary things I've ever done. I thought it stopped right there. I said, 
Ooh, I finished that. I made it. She wanted to kill me, but I got away. You know, so <laughs> I, I did that. Okay, God. Okay. What else do you want me to do? Now, understand, I'm not thinking anything beyond the next step. Then he says, okay, I want you to um, go ahead and tell your son. What? My son? Oh. I'm his hero. I'm Superman to Kendall. I got to tell him. And that was probably the scariest thing I've ever had to do. And I did that. Whew, I survived because kids are very forgiving. Thank God. <laughs> and so my son, and you're talking about he's nine at the time when I was telling him this. And so I survived that. Then he says, tell your mom. My mom? But this is about sex and women. And my mom doesn't even think I have sex. You know what I mean? Right? <laughs> and so I got to tell her. So I do that. Now, understand, though, Mark, as I'm doing this, I, I, I'm getting a little bit of practice. My ex-wife, my son, my mom. Then it was my sister. What? My <laughs> sister? Come on. This is the most embarrassing thing. God, trust me. Tell your sister. Then I told my best friend. Then I told um, my executive assistant. That was hard. <laughs> Who yeah. worked for me. And then before you know it, guess what I found out, Mark? I was standing on a stage. He said, now tell the audience. See, so it didn't just happen like that. It had to start with small incremental steps, steps of obedience. Now, imagine this. Now, let's go backwards. I want you to share this with your ex-wife. God, please. I can't tell her. She, she wants me, she's going to ask me questions. It's going to be so embarrassing because I was trying to save my marriage at the same time. So you got to be honest. You got to come clean. So I got to tell her everything. God, please don't make me do that. What if I said this? God, why in the world would you want me to do this, to tell her? Well, I got to tell her everything. Okay, since you're asking me questions, my son, here's why. Because about 15 years from now, I'm going to send you all over the world. As a matter of fact, you're going to have the top radio podcast for Christian men where they're going to come in droves because you're going to be a light of hope for them to be able to share their story so they can get healing. And I'm going to see you all the time where you're going to speak into thousands of men at a time. And you're going to get over a million dollars on your podcast. Guess what I would have said, Mark? I ain't doing that. No <laughs> way. You mean I'm going to have to talk to how many people? No. See, it was only started with my ex-wife. And that was hard. See, there's a reason why God doesn't show us everything. Because if, we, if he did, we'd have a heart attack. Because we wouldn't believe we were capable of making that type of impact. I didn't know I was going to be on your show 16 years ago when this happened, but he knew that you're going to do this and it's not going to be as um, fearful. You're not going to be afraid anymore. You're not going to be afraid of appearing weak. You're not going to walk around in shame that you're going to have your head up and not putting your head in the sand about it. So it's the small incremental steps And the first. It starts with that first piece of vulnerability. You start, you got to start somewhere before you can get anywhere. I, I'm smiling through all of this because even though our stories are so very different, the healing takes place the same. The same way. Yeah. The same, the same way of those, those simple steps. And there's no way <laughs> I ever dreamed that right. we would be. Right. I mean, one that we talk about what we talk about, and I'm talking to you and on a on a podcast that I never ever imagined we would be doing a podcast. Me I either, remember Me when either. I heard God tell me you need to do a podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what? 
what are you talking about? But I had had enough of those steps of obedience right. that I knew to not question, just do it. Just do it. And just I didn't know it. how to do it, mm-hmm. but it was just do it. And then we started and progressively we're, we're getting better at it. And, but people are healing because we're being vulnerable right? and sharing hope and light that like you, it's not about us. We want to lead them to God. Now, and it, now just, just imagine this for a second though. Imagine when you guys were just, you know, thinking about your story and God said, okay, now here's the first step I want you to do. Put it all over the internet, put it all <laughs> over the internet. So it'll never be deleted. And everybody get, you're like, what? You've never done it. No way. But guess what? Now it's all over the internet. Did it? It's anywhere. You just Google my name or Google you guys. They'll find out your story. You could have never told me I would have made that public. No way. No way. That's that second step of obedience. You, you know, you, you look at uh, you look at the internet and uh, the ability to put any word into the internet mm-hmm. and uh, find a plethora, you know, thousands and thousands of references to that one particular word. And you used a word a few minutes ago that I think is really important, and that is the word scars. We all have scars. And as as uh, as you know, Annette and I put together a course uh, that uh, is called... Uh, it's from Broken to Beautiful. Ooh, and, I love that. And, and we talk about uh, precious scars. And uh, a precious scar, you know, we, when we think of scars, we, we think of uh, something that uh, is, uh, is uh, unsightly. It's something that we don't want to share with others. And we don't want to share our scars. Mm-hmm. Because of that shame that you talked about. Right. You know, I, I, look, at, uh, I look at our son. We, we, we have a son that uh, uh, unfortunately passed away at the age of 21 from a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. But uh, he used to have scars from his brain surgeries and uh, knee surgeries. And uh, he used to be so excited to share people his scars. And <laughs> we, never, we could never really understand that. These battle wounds right. that he was so proud of. And right. mom is, every time I saw, you know, these pictures, they carry around these you know, eight by 10 glossies framed in his backpack at school. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, You want to see my 70 stitches on my head there? Yeah. Let me, let me show it to you. Oh man. But, but I, but I, but I look at that and I, and I look at uh, the fact that we all have scars and uh, very often we're not willing to share those scars. Now we're not talking about the down and the dirty and the, we, we should have done this differently, but we, we talk about precious scars because a precious scars a precious scar allows us the change. It allows us to be able to put ourselves in a position where not only can we change, but we can share precious scars with others. And that's exactly what you're doing. You know, I look, when I think about scars, I, I'm, I'm right on the same page with you. What I love about scars, it makes sure it, it reminds you, make sure you never forget who healed you and where the healing came from. Exactly, because it's through him and through his precious, I I, I look at through his precious blood, his precious mm-hmm. metal. I have a visual of a bowl that's been broken and I broke it. You know, oftentimes we do things that we break ourselves, right? But it's put back together with this precious metal, with this gold. Right. It's stronger. It's more beautiful. Mm-hmm. It, you know, all the things. And it has when, character. 
it helps us to become who we are. I was preparing to teach a group of women at church. And, and all of a sudden I had this visual of my son and that's when this whole, you know, precious scars and broke into beautiful, but the healing that took place in me when I recognized that this huge difference between my son and I, because he was so proud and I hid because Mm -hmm. what would people think? Right. You know, they think that I'm just happy and all was well and no, there's pain. Mm -hmm. And, and that shame. And so I had to learn to let him heal me and trust when he told me to share. I remember specifically when he said, you need to share your story. I'm like, no way. Mm-hmm. No it's way. It's an ugly story. It's an mm-hmm. ugly story. And mm-hmm. I can share this and teach this principle of these scars without sharing my story. But he said, no, you need to share your story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was able to share the story. I finally quit arguing. <laughs> I said, okay, okay, I'll do it. The, the healing that took place in that congregation of women, and they could relate it to whatever happened in their life and those scars. And that's just like and with the men. And now, you know, it's not just women that are broken. The men are broken. We all are broken. We all are broken. All, all a scar does is close the wound. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it puts us in, in a place where it doesn't matter what the, uh, the wound was, but it closes the wound and it makes us whole again. So I, I've got a question for you, Dr. Joe, as, we, as you talk about confidence. And one of the things that you talk about is that you equip men with the confidence that they need to win life's battles. So I, I guess the question I would have there is, uh, where does confidence meet value? You know, we, we, all have, we all have confidence. We maybe, well, at times in our lives, maybe we don't have confidence, but confidence has to be met with value at some point. Right. right. Where does that come yeah. from? And, you know, the word we say confidence because men can relate to the word confidence. They want to be confident. Um, but there's an operative word that goes in front of confidence. God confidence. Mm -hmm. And because we have self-confidence, which you cannot bank on. I had a lot of self-confidence to go to what, where I came from to achieve all of that before I was 30 years old, because they said, how did you do it? Man, I believed in myself, self-confidence. And I like what you said, how is it attached to value? See, I was finding confidence in what I could do, my abilities, my skills. I thought in my intelligence and my work ethic and where you get your confidence also is where you're getting your value. So I'm assigning value to myself based on what I do. But when you have God confidence, your value doesn't come based on what you do. It comes from who God says you are in him, your identity. So to me, the the connection that you're talking about, that confidence and value is my identity in Christ gives me God confidence, if that makes sense. Yeah. And knowing who I am in him gives me the God confidence to do all things through Christ. But that's not what I had. I had self-confidence before. And and I I appreciate the way that you structured that there, because you can have confidence without having values. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was me. That was me. And I thought that was enough. 
but I didn't understand my value. I didn't understand my value in him that take away the degrees, take away the homes, the business. I'm still who he says I am, but I thought I was nothing. In other words, I had value when I was in the hood, (laughs) but I didn't see it because I thought I can't have value if somebody is molesting me. I can't have value if my mom's an alcoholic. I can't have value if my father abandons us and leaves us. Says who? I'm still God says I am. I'm his beloved. I'm his chosen. That he set me apart. I know the plans I have for you, not to harm you, but to prosper you. In other words, the same thing that's in me now was in me back then. I just didn't see it because I was uh, attaching my value based on what I saw and what I did and what people thought of me and how they treated me as opposed to get my value and my identity through God, who he says I am. So, so you talked about uh, uh, men that uh, had, had uh, been unkind to you. You've also talked about uh, those that uh, have been important uh, aspects of your life. Now, the fact that uh, our podcast is called Trail Angels, you know, the fact that someone has been there before who's uh, set the way for us, and it sounds like you've got a number of trail angels in your life. Is there anyone in particular that you would point out as a trail angel? And not only the, that, but what did they do that made them a trail angel? Well, I go back to the one that you already mentioned before. His name is Howard Mintz. You're right, Mark. I have a lot of trail angels in my life um, that I could spend the whole show talking about each one of them. But the pivotal one was him um, because what what made him that the the key trail angel for me, he showed me something. He got me exposed to something I've never seen before. I I give you an example. My mom, after I had went, I I met Howard and when I had a chance to meet Howard and I, I came back home and I was living in Tallahassee at the time. And my mom says, um, I heard that you met a man. Um, your sister told me you met a man down in Miami. I said, yeah. I said, he said, tell me about, I said, my, he's amazing. I said, he's a Christian. She says, so you know a lot of Christians I say, no, mama, he's a real one. That's what I told her. Right? I said, he's a real Christian. I said, I've never met a Christian like this man before. And she couldn't understand what I'm saying. What are you talking about? You grew up in the church. What do you mean? I said, mama, I can't explain it. You just got to meet him. And when she met him for the first time, my mom passed away in 2019, mm-hmm. but she got a chance to meet Howard. And the first thing she said after she met him, she says, I see. Now I see. And what it was, he was an example of what a real man is. In other words, modeling Christ with flesh, with skin on it. And I'd never seen anything like that in real life that I could actually touch and ask questions and get up under to kind of learn from. I'd never been exposed to something like that. And I just found I was attracted to him and I didn't want to leave his presence. And um, he was actually bringing me as a guest speaker Mm. for an event in Miami. And I stayed with him for five days. And his family with his eight kids and his lovely wife. And I saw a family for the first time that prayed together. They had family devotionals that they respected him. He wasn't rich. He didn't have a lot of degrees, but they, there was this, this, this is this presence that he had in the home. I'm like, wow, what if my son would look at me that way? What if my wife looked at me that way? And he, he Watching him, I, this way I, I, I describe it this way, Mark. You know you live in your life right when your life demands an explanation. 
Mm. How has life demanded an explanation? Hmm. What? Hmm. I don't get it. Hmm. Can I ask you some questions? And before he was taking me back to the airport, I told him he had given me this bag full of like books and CDs and stuff about fatherhood. And because we spent a lot of time talking, and I guess he kind of assumed that wow, this this dude got all these degrees. He knows nothing about being a man, right? <laughs> so he's giving me all, all these resources. And I'm looking at these resources, this bag, this one you can actually take stuff on the planes. And I had um, I'm looking at this bag full of stuff, and I just started crying. And he says, Joe, you all right? And I told him, I said, I said, and he was still at that time, he was still Mr. Mintz. I said, Mr. Mintz, you have no idea how long I've prayed. You, you have no idea how I thought God had forsaken me. Because my dad left when I was two. My grandfather died when I was 10. And the first man to ever tell me he loved me raped me for three years and I didn't have any confidence in men. And I, and I had no idea. I didn't know. I didn't know how to be a man until I lost it all. And I realized that God, I don't get it. If I'm your child, why haven't you sent me someone? Why haven't you sent me a Paul? Someone to show me. I'm tired of people looking up to me because of what I have and what I've achieved. When really I want to tell them, I don't know anything. And I say, I, and I say, Mr. Mintz, I meet you through your son who asked me to sign a book for his dad when I was mm-hmm. speaking and lecturing at Florida International University. And the only reason I stopped to talk to him, I said, because nobody's ever asked me to sign a book for their dad before. So I asked him questions about his dad. And I and God told me, my spirit told me, to give him my card. I gave this boy my card. He gave it to him and he called me. And that's how I ended up coming back down to Miami. So even God's fingerprints was on it. So I'm bawling in front of him while he's giving his bag. And I said, Mr. Mintz, I said, I know you have eight children. Would you adopt just one more? (laughs) And he started crying. He says, yes, yeah, I'll do it. And he's been fathering me for the last 16 years. And when doing our relationship now, he's Howard to me. I just call him Howard. And I've been through a lot with Howard. We almost lost him five years ago to cancer. He, he beat it. But I remember asking how one day I said, um, Howard, I just don't get it. Why did God wait so long to bring you into my life? You changed everything for me. And Howard, you got to understand Howard. He's so humble. He said, oh, Joe, don't ask questions like that. Oh, don't ask questions. Just be thankful. And what Howard really should have told me was this. Oh, he would have brought me earlier if you weren't so doggone arrogant. But he didn't <laughs> tell me. But that's what the truth answer was. Because I wasn't ready to receive a Howard back then because you couldn't tell me anything because I had self-confidence. But now that I was humble enough to receive it, I was, but Howard told me, I said, Howard, what could I ever do to repay you? You just name it. Whatever I can do for you, man, I owe you my life. What? And he just, no, no, no. He said, Joe, you don't owe me anything except one thing. I'm like, you name it. What is it? You tell me when to do it. He says, go make disciples. Hmm. He says, go do what I've done for you. He's the reason why I have this organization now, Real Men Connect. And he's one of our biggest supporters. He sends men to me now. Could you imagine how proud he is to say, wow, who knew <laughs> that that kid was going to go all over the world, impacting men all over the world, because I just told him to go make disciples. 
And so, but here's the sad thing about it. Do you know he's never appeared on my show? He won't come on. Will Mm. not do my show. He does not want to be in the spotlight. Mm. That just tells you something about his spirit. Disciple right there. Yeah, he doesn't know, Joe. It's not about me. I say, Howard, Mm. come on, please, man. They think you're a figment of my imagination. Nobody believes you exist. He's not on social media. He's never written any books. He's not famous. And everybody knows me. I talk about him all the time, but nobody's ever seen him. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Other than the people who know him personally. And I cannot get him to be on my show. I, I, I'm thinking of, of this incredible disciple. And often in my prayers, I pray to be a disciple because I want people to see the hope, the love. It's not about me. And I'm sure if Howard had been told to do something like you were told, He would do it because he was obedient. Right. But that's not his mission. And, and so, you know, what, what an incredible, incredible man. Can can I share a quick side story with you guys to show you when I tell you that uh, there's a lot of things Howard did that his life demanded an explanation, but there was one thing in particular that stood out. Can I share a quick story with you guys? Yes. Um, Howard um, picked me up at the airport when he brought me in to speak to Miami because he wanted to bring me back to my old neighborhood because I'd never been back to my old neighborhood because he thought I could give kids hope. He didn't know we were going to develop a relationship. He just was happy that his son ran into this guy who made it out of the projects in Miami because Howard was voluntarily teaching in Liberty City. How coincidental. Think about it. His son asked me to sign a book, mm-hmm. finds out that his dad is teaching in my old neighborhood. But, which kind of floored me already because his son is named Micah. Micah is white. I'm like, is your dad white? He says, yeah. I said, there's no white people in Liberty City. What are you talking about? Your dad teaches in Liberty City. <laughs> and he says, he doesn't live in Liberty City. He said, but he voluntarily, he teaches there. No one wants to teach in Liberty City. It's just a hard school. You're talking about gangs, drugs, all this other stuff. But his dad does it. So he picks me up at the airport. He takes me back to my old neighborhood. And I'm a little bit concerned because I'm in this car with this white guy and the sun is going down. And we're going to Liberty City. And I'm thinking, I've been going away for a while, but I know one thing. You don't want to be caught here with a white guy when it's dark, right? So I'm nervous for him because I'm thinking, dude, you need to get up out of this neighborhood, right? But the roles were reversed. He knew everybody in the neighborhood. They're questioning me. Mr. Mintz, who's that guy in the car with you? He said, oh, this is Joe. You sure? Is he, are you all right, Mr. Mintz? They're protecting <laughs> him, Right. Against me. I'm like, wait a minute, this is my hood, right? <laughs> but, this, but this was the thing that, that floored me. After we're getting ready to leave, he says, Joe, I got one more stop to take you by. And he takes me in front of this crack house. And I know it's a crack house, but I don't think he knows it's a crack house. And I don't understand why we're stopping in front of it. And he says, he stops and said, do you know what this is? I said, yeah, I know what this is, Mr. Mintz. I said, do you know what this is? I'm like, that, right? He says, yeah, it's a crack house. I said, Mr. Mintz, why are you stopping in front of a crack house? Man, this is not safe. He says, no, I wanted to show you something. I said, show me what? He says, where it happened. I said, well, what happened? He says, where they found my dad's dead body. <sighs> His dad was murdered in another hood in Carroll City, which is north of Liberty City. They carjacked him. And they found his dead body, they found the car in Kara City. His body was dumped in front of this crack house um, in Liberty City. 
and my mouth drops. And I said, Mr. Mintz, I said, how old were you when that happened? He said, I was 19. And I got the news that my dad was murdered. And this is where they found his body. And I'm just like, just floored. And I said, Mr. Mintz, I said, can I ask you a quick member? Demand an explanation. This demands an explanation. Mm-hmm. I said, I, I, I don't understand. He says, what? I said, um, you teach at one of the worst schools in Liberty City. Oh, by the way, he and his, um, at the time I met him, he was only in education about 22 years. He's now retired. He had been in education for 22 years, had gone to 26 funerals of middle school kids. Oh. Not high school, middle school. So wow. I'm so I'm saying, Mr. Mintz, I don't get it. He says, what? I said, you could teach anywhere in Miami. But not only do you teach, choose to teach in Liberty City, you cheat at the worst middle school in Liberty City. And not only are you teaching at the worst school, you're in charge of indoor suspension that you volunteered to do. And I said, and now that freaks me out, number one. But what you're telling me now is that my neighborhood, my hood took your father's life. But you're taking your time, your talents and your energy and you're bringing it to Liberty City voluntarily. I don't get it. Out of all of it, why would you want to come back here to teach when it's so traumatic? The constant reminder of what happened to your dad. I don't get it. And he looks at me like as if I'm the stupidest person on the planet. He said, you don't get it. I said, no. He says, he says, Joe, the reason why I came here to teach is because this neighborhood took my father away from me because they didn't have a father. So I felt if I came back and became one to them, they'll never have to take another. Wow. What a perspective. What kind of man is this? Well, what a perspective. What kind of man is this? And because he loved that community, those students, as a father, they protected him. They protected him. From me. (laughs) From me. (laughs) I grew up there. But that's, and he said, that's why he was looking at me. Don't you get it? Now they're going to respect a father. They never had one. And I ne- I, and I grew up and I didn't even see it. And he's absolutely right. Because I, a lot of the murders that I saw take place in Liberty City, even as a child, I would question, like, where's the conscience? That's somebody's dad. That's somebody's brother. That's somebody's son. And, it, and, and people always ask me, what was my biggest fear of growing up in the hood? It wasn't the actual murders. It wasn't the actual drugs and the violence. It was the attitude that no one seemed to care that they would do that stuff. That scared the daylights out of me because the only reason my mom was alive because she knew me. Yeah. But if she didn't know me, that'd kill her. And so it was the attitude. And that's what Howard was hoping that was going to change if they could attach value to somebody who actually loved them as a father. And it's amazing because what Howard has done for me, you guys can hear the story now. But I'm one of the few who has a platform to tell his story. He's done this with like dozens of guys. I'm not the only a matter of fact, I'm not even his favorite. Are you following? He's got other guys. He's always telling me about all the time. I'm like, where do you have the time to do all this? But I'm not even his top guy. He does this for a lot of men. And so that's why he was encouraging me to go make disciples. And he's right, because now I'm doing it for other men. This is 
been a powerful hour. Uh, I, I can't, you know, we, we could sit down and we could probably talk for another couple of hours and not even come close to what the agenda was that uh, we thought we were going to talk about today. Did we even cover any of that stuff? That we're supposed to cover? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's you guys told me there some questions going to ask. You haven't even asked some of the questions you're going to ask. Hey, you know what? That's okay because, uh, you know, you know we, we know that uh, now that you're a friend, that we could probably invite you on again Absolutely. as well. And we fully yes. anticipate doing that. And, but the next time we want your wife on with we you. Want your wife on. Now, oh, and I got to warn you, she is scared to death of anything that she has to be on media. I'm, I can still probably talk into doing it, but she, she's not going to be a free willer like me. She's going to be already like, like Tanya, loosen up. Oh, I get, I got to share this quick story. I had her on my show, right? Tanya was on my show. Do you know, now see how you guys, you sit next together? My wife wouldn't sit next to me when I did the interview. She sat in the bedroom because she said, I can't look at you when I'm doing the show. <laughs> Are you kidding me? What? You sleep with me. What are you talking about? Awesome. She couldn't even sit in the same room next to me right now to do the show. Unbelievable. Wow. So that's what you're going to be dealing with if I bring on that. Okay. <laughs> we can deal with that. We can deal with that. But. The reason I know it's okay that we didn't address any of these questions that we thought we were going to be asking was because this was directed by the Spirit. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the things that we're going to do, and sometimes we we refer our, our listeners to different sites, whether they be an internet site or a document or a book or something else. And we're going to we're going to do that. Uh, one of the things we wanted to do is to uh, direct uh, the audience to rmcfree.com. That is going to give you some great training videos and information that uh, Dr. Joe Martin has put together uh, that uh, he's he's allowing listeners to to listen to and to and 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 to find some wisdom from that uh, that goes beyond what we've talked about. Some real real life situational type uh, work that they can do tools. And we'll have those links in the show notes so they can just click right on that and um, have access. Yeah. The other, the other thing I want to reference our listeners to is, is something that uh, Annette and I uh, hold near and dear to our heart. It's a document uh, called the family, a proclamation to the world. And it talks a lot about uh, some of the things that we've been sharing and, uh, and and Dr. Joe has been sharing with us today as well, talking about model homes. Now, I know that I know that life isn't model. I know that we go through struggles. We go through different uh, circumstances that, uh, that uh, create those scars. But we believe that uh, as we strive to live our lives in a way that would put us in a position where we can grow and progress in in not only life, but uh, in in our relationship with God, that uh, it it puts us in a situation where we can gain wisdom and and be able to help others, as Dr. Joe has done. So with that, we wanted to thank Dr. Joe Martin for being a guest with us today on Trail Angels. We hope that you've enjoyed our conversation. Each of us have a story to share. Author Brene Brown reminds us that owning our story is the bravest thing that we'll ever do. The stories and the experiences our guests share inspire us as well as to help us to grow and to connect with others. We invite you to become a part of Karen the Load and Trail Angels through our community in social media, as well as to share the site with those you know. We are stronger together. Keep Karen. <laughs>